Amen. Thank you, Mark. If you guys would, why don't you start making your way to Luke chapter 6. That's where we will be here in a few minutes this morning. Luke chapter 6. Have you ever had the opportunity to meet one of your heroes? I'll never forget when, when I got a, a text from a friend of mine. He, 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 simply said, he simply said, you don't happen to play tennis, do you, Rick? I said, actually, I, I do. I love tennis. Why? What's up? And he, he, he asked, you want to play tennis in, in a couple hours with Michael Bird? I, I, he, he's in town, and I, I promised him I'd at least try to find him a tennis partner. I froze. Michael Bird? The Michael Bird, prolific New Testament scholar from Australia, Michael Bird. It might as well have been Michael Jordan. For a, for a, a theology nerd like myself, your heroes tend to be super nerdy theologians. And Michael Bird is right there at the top of that list. Tennis with Michael Bird. Uh, yeah, I'll see you in a couple hours, bro. After canceling the the rest of my afternoon, I found myself playing tennis with one of my heroes. And then I beat him in a tiebreaker. We got a a picture up here of me and Mr. Bird. There we are. He he looks happy, but he he really wasn't too happy. He he choked in the tiebreaker. So so he asked, you free to run it back tomorrow? (laughs) And he said, we can even spend some time talking about your dissertation. (laughs) Uh, duh, I thought, but, but not wanting him to see my man crush. I, I played it cool. Yeah. Let me check my schedule and I'll get back to you. I I cleared my schedule obviously. And, and for our second date, I picked him up and, 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 and drove him to Parker. He wanted to play on nicer tennis courts. He even had me go to the store and grab high altitude tennis balls. I didn't even know those existed, but I guess the courts and the balls were why he lost. Well, we played again, another nail biter, but I beat him again. And to his credit, he's almost 50 and he was not used to the altitude. I'm sure things would have gone a lot, a lot differently if we were in Australia. But then we sat at Chipotle And I got to share with my theological hero, my research topic, and my project. I got to share with him my frustrations, and I asked him so many questions. After giving me a lot of hmms and interesting, he asked me, Rick, what's the one thing that the Apostle Paul said he taught everywhere and to every church? Um, I thought to myself, is this a trick question from a Pauline scholar? Is he just mad because he lost in tennis? So he's trying to prove to me that he's actually better than me at what really matters. The Bible. I don't know. I said the gospel. He opened up to first Corinthians four and showed me that what Paul taught everywhere and to every church was his way of life. Since that meeting and after reading some books, he he recommended Paul's phrase, way of life, has become a huge emphasis in my dissertation. And not just in my dissertation, it's become a huge emphasis in how I see discipleship. Paul had a way of life that he taught everywhere 
into every church. He tells the Corinthians at one point, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Talk about a way of life. Look at how I'm living and do likewise. As much as the apostle Paul loved theology and Paul loves theology, what what really mattered to Paul is if that theology hit the ground. If that theology had legs, does it affect the way you live? As much as we know the book of Romans to be Paul's great theological treatise, or what some call his magnus opus, even the purpose of Romans, he says right there in chapter 1, was written for the obedience of faith, namely a way of life. So let me ask you a, a question, and it's, it's not a trick question. What is your way of life? We all have a way of life. What is yours? Or maybe I'll ask it like this. What are you becoming? Whether you like it or not, we are all being formed. What is forming you? Let me ask it just one other way. We are all disciples. Everyone in this room and in our city is a disciple to something or someone. Who or what are you a disciple of? As we finish the sermon on the plane this morning from Luke chapter 6, this is what Luke is after. This is what Jesus is after. What are you becoming? Well, if you're not already there, please open those Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Like I said, we're going to finish the Sermon on the Plain. We'll start in verse 37. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Do not judge. Now this is a favorite verse for for many people. Many of them want nothing to do with Christ and his church, but but they'll use this verse like, doesn't the Bible say, do not judge? Or like my childhood hero, Tupac, used to say, only God can judge me. And after Tupac would say, only God can judge me, he'd put out music like one of my old favorites, Thug Mansion. This song was was his take on heaven, his eschatology. The chorus went, ain't no place I'd rather be, chillin' with homies and family, sky-high iced-out paradise in the sky. Ain't no place I'd rather be, only place that's right for me, chromed-out mansion in paradise in the sky. You didn't think we'd be singing Tupac this morning. Now, 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 Tupac, <laughs> thank you. Now, Tupac will share with us his judgment on the afterlife, but, but don't tell Tupac how to live. Only God can judge him as he heads to Thug Mansion. 
Now, with all the respect, and I actually have mad respect for Tupac. I got a portrait of him hanging in my study. But like I told you guys a while back, we are all theologians. And Tupac's a bad theologian. The only God can judge me mindset is not what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Plain. Though God will judge each one of us, and I'm not sure why you'd want to get that tatted on your back if you knew who, how holy, holy, holy this God is, a consuming fire. Nevertheless, what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's building off the idea from last week. Love your enemies. This first century Jewish rabbi is giving a lesson in ethics. Giving a lesson on ethics in his upside down kingdom. Before I try to explain what Jesus is saying, let's make sure we're clear on what he's not saying. He is not ruling out ethical judgment. He's not. I mean, look at verse 43 and 44 for crying out loud. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized or judged by its own fruit. Hmm. Okay, so we can judge right and wrong. What is Jesus saying then? Do not judge. Do not condemn. Jesus is warning against hypocritical and self-righteousness in our judgmental or our judgment and our condemnation of others. Look with me at verse 41. He's warning against hypocritical and self-righteousness in our judgment and condemnation of others. Verse 41, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And before we quickly think we're off the hook, because hey, only Pharisees are hypocrites and we're not Pharisees. let's, Let's pause here for at least a moment. Just like when I asked my Jewish atheist aunt her her take on Christianity and Christians. And she said, lots of hypocrites, Rick, lots of hypocrites. And sadly, she's not entirely wrong. If you look at church history, ancient to today, and just like everything else in Jesus's upside down kingdom, this ethic is likewise upside down. This is challenging. And this is meant for us not the Pharisees somewhere else. Like Jen talked about in her article this week on the Gospel Coalition, the the concept of respectable sins. Oh, how respectable sins can invade the church. And in judgment, condemnation is just a couple of them. Jesus is calling us to believe the best about one another. Yeah, that sounds a lot easier than it actually is. Just last week, Holly had to remind me in some extended family conflict, you're closer to this person, Rick, than you are to Jesus. Ouch. 
she was right. How easy do do we see the the sins in others without seeing our own selves? How quick are we to judge and condemn one another? And yet we are grateful that God is slow to anger with us. Or like G.K. Chesterton said, Now the mistake of hypocrites is not that they criticize the world. Again, Jesus is not saying we should not judge right from wrong. But he continues, it is that they never criticize themselves. They compare the person with the ideal, but they do not at the same time compare themselves with the ideal. Rather, they identify themselves with the ideal. Yikes, right? Is that not all of us at times? There's definitely a place for correction, judgment, condemnation, inside and outside the church. But let's do some honest introspection first. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, you guys are are with me. Although there's two negative commands, do not judge, do not condemn, there's also two positive ones. And if that's how we ought not to live, well then, how shall We live. Middle of verse 37. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and you'll be blessed. God's God's upside down kingdom is filled first with, with those who forgive. Like we all know, forgiveness can be hard. And at times can be an extremely long process depending on the offense. But as God has forgiven us, we are likewise called to imitate him. We forgive because we've been forgiven. This doesn't mean we excuse the sin. No, on the contrary, we name it. But, but, But we don't find ourselves in bondage trying to hold on to it. Or, or, or seek our own revenge because of it. Ultimately, God is calling us to be a people who are free. Or like Tim Keller said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. And this, is, this, is, this can be a hard topic for some people. If if you need a resource just to begin dealing with forgiveness, I I think his book, I think it's called Forgive, is is a great place to start. Tim Keller. Not only does God call us to be a people who forgive, but, but he's also calling us to be a people who give and to give generously. How you judge, condemn, forgive, and give is coming back to you from others, from God. This whole, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap is an illustration taken from measuring grains and dry goods in the marketplace in the first century. These items were traded in volume. So, so shrewd, or you might say dishonest vendors would, would find a way to give you a little bit less than what you actually paid for. Jesus calls us to do the opposite in our giving. Instead of asking, well, what's the minimum? Or how can I rig the system to my advantage? How can I give, but it not hurt? <laughs> It not be a sacrifice. Jesus says, nah, 
That's not how it works. My people give generously. My people give sacrificially. And guess what? Rich blessings God will bestow on your life. And again, with Jesus' command to, to forgive and to give, like Mark talked about last week, he's only calling us ultimately to imitate himself. And the aspect of of giving, you think Second Corinthians, where, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, the second person in the Godhead rich, yet for your sake he became poor, became a man and died on a Roman cross poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This is the gospel. And in this upside down kingdom of God, we're called to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, to be imitators of Christ in our giving, to be imitators of Christ in our forgiveness. But we're not simply to, to just imitate a few things about Jesus. Let's take a look at what I think is the center of this passage. Why don't you look with me at verse 39? He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. What Jesus is saying here seems rather clear. Can the blind lead the blind? Yeah, but that won't end well. Be careful who you follow. Jesus is saying, we are all being formed. What are you being formed into? Everyone is a disciple of someone or something. What are you becoming? Now we can skim past. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. But again, this is Jesus, the Jewish rabbi talking to a large crowd of disciples or students, or as some translate, apprentices. A little context on first century rabbis. These were the dudes in Israel. These were the influencers. They had a blue check next to their name. These were the ones who you looked up to, who you hoped and prayed that your kids would become. These kids would start school around age five at their local elementary school, a.k.a. the Bet Sefer, which means house of the book. And this is what they did. They studied the book. In this oral culture, their curriculum was simply the Torah. That's it. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Yeah, for some of us, it's crazy to think Jesus probably wasn't homeschooled. Now, by around puberty, most of these kids would have gotten the entire Torah memorized. Yes, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. But at that point, most students, 12 to 13 years old, they would head home, learn the family business, and live a quiet life trying to honor Yahweh. The sharpest cats, though, these guys would move on to secondary school, high school, a.k.a. Bet Midrash, the house of learning. 
They would continue their studies. And and by the time we learn to drive a car at age 16, 17, these guys had the whole Old Testament memorized. Yikes, right? But at this point, their time in school would end. At 17 years old, they, like the first group, would go home, learn the family business, and make some babies and pray to to Yahweh that maybe one of their kids would become a rabbi. But the brightest and most promising students, the, the elite, the best of the best, would apply to become an apprentice under a rabbi. Now this was not easy. Here's what John Mark Comer says in his wonderful new book, Practicing the Way, He says, quote, apprenticeship programs were the equivalent of the Ivy League today, but even more exclusive. You had to find a rabbi whose yoke you were drawn to and then beg to join his band of students. The rabbi would grill you. How well do you know the Torah? What's your take on the Nephilim in Genesis 6? Do you side with Hillel or Shema on Deuteronomy 24? Tell me, how often do you pray? And if you thought you had the smarts, the work ethic, and the chutzpah to one day become a rabbi yourself, he would say something like, come, follow me, end quote. Those three words sound familiar. Come, follow me. Comer, he goes on to talk about the three things you would do if you got chosen to be an apprentice under a rabbi. First, you'd be with your rabbi. You'd literally be covered in his dust. This was not a a Tuesday, Thursday class from 9 to 10.50 with your favorite professor. This was life on life, 24-7. Every waking moment, you'd be with your rabbi. And second, you would become like your rabbi. This is what Jesus is getting at in verse 40 of our passage. The apprentice is not above the rabbi, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their rabbi. This was the heart of being an apprentice. You would become your rabbi, your master. So that third, you would do as your rabbi did. This was the end goal. Rabbis making rabbis who themselves would go out and make more rabbis. After training under a rabbi for many, many years, remember you started at about age 17. At around age 30, if you were in a good spot, hopefully you would go out yourself, begin to teach, and call your own apprentices. I hope you can see that that context is king. Because without understanding what it was to be a student and a teacher in Jesus' day, we, church, can actually miss a lot. We can miss our entire calling as disciples of Christ. Namely, the call to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do as he did. Could you imagine missing your calling because it was lost in translation? Maybe you were told you just needed to pray a prayer. Well, Jesus knows good and well that discipleship could be misunderstood. And so he continues with his parables. Look at verse 43. 
No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And Jesus is saying here that that your way of life speaks a lot louder than your mouth. And even when you do open your mouth, it's really just a product of what's in your heart. The fruit you produce is telling to who you're becoming, whose disciple you are. What does the fruit in your life say about what you're becoming? What does the fruit in your life Maybe ask your spouse later on. What does the fruit in your life say about who you are becoming? One of the scandalous things about Jesus is, as a rabbi, he's unlike any rabbi on the scene. Not only are people amazed by the authority that he speaks with and and then the miracles that are being accomplished by his hands, but he doesn't wait for the best and the brightest to come and apply for apprenticeship. He's choosing fishermen, zealots, tax collectors, prostitutes, you, me, any sinner who would hear his voice is welcome to be his apprentice. Maybe he's calling someone in this room right now for the first time. He does that. Here's Rabbi Jesus' call. This is from Matthew's account. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is crazy. The greatest rabbi ever to live, the the son of God, Israel's Messiah, the, the savior of the world, Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus, the God man, is offering any and everybody a full ride scholarship to be his apprentice. Oh, the grace of God. But what is also crazy is how many professing Christians are actually disciples. Jesus' apprentices. Pew research shows that that 60% to 63% of Americans self-identify as Christians. 63%. So it's still pretty high. It's obviously on the decline. But 63%. Self-identify as Christian, but Barna Research conducted a study to see what percentage of Americans are actually following Jesus, namely being a disciple, an apprentice, one who is becoming like their rabbi. They had a certain criteria, 4%. It's one thing to admire Jesus, maybe even affirm his teachings, have all the right beliefs about Christian doctrine, but it means nothing 
if we're not following Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. The apprentices are few. Well, Jesus knows there will be many who call him Lord, but we're not his apprentices, his disciples. Would you look with me at verse 46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Verse 49. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now this passage, this is heavy and I do hope you feel the weight of this. The tone of this text is not chipper and so I'm not going to preach chipperly, if that's a word. It's calling us like the apostle Paul says to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. It reminds me very much of Jesus's own words in the sermon on the Mount in Matthew's account, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? That doesn't sound like people outside the church either. Then I will tell them plainly, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of sin. Pistis is the word we translate faith. And if we're not careful, we can have an easy believism Christianity where we may fool ourselves into thinking that Jesus is Lord when he's not. Pistis is multifaceted. Yes, it is simply belief, but it's also a a deep, active trust in the God who saves. It's an allegiance to a king, a way of life. Faith is following, yes, imperfectly, but following nonetheless. Are you a self-identified Christian or an apprentice of Jesus? Finally, Jesus is going to give us a picture through another parable, what the, the Jesus apprentice actually looks like. So why don't you look with me? Verse 47. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. I asked you guys earlier, what are you becoming? The, the Christian is at the same time saint and sinner. We are a, a work in progress, but we are in progress. Every apprentice who is fully trained will be like their rabbi. None of us are there. And until we see him face to face, we are daily fighting our flesh. Sometimes winning, 
sometimes losing, but we're in the fight. My application this morning, it's, it's simple. It's what we've been talking about. The, the three things one does if they apprentice under a rabbi, be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do as he did. This is our calling friends. Uh, Imagine if we at Redemption Parker as a church strategically located in Parker, Colorado, we're not simply a group of professing Christians who, who showed up together once a week, but we're like C.S. Lewis says, little Christ apprentices of Jesus, people who know Jesus, who are becoming like Jesus and are doing what he is calling us to do. Could you imagine our impact for the glory of God and joy of all peoples? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the scandal of the gospel. That you don't wait for us to come to you with our really impressive resumes. But that you enter the brokenness of this world. You live the life we could not live. You die the death that we deserve. And you call to any come. Come. Take my yoke. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And and I just pray for this church that we would not be a church that hears. And that's it. Oh, how easy it is to hear. Oh, how easy it is to profess Christianity. Oh, how easy it is even to show up to church. Lord, help us to follow you. Help us to be a church, though imperfectly. Help us to be a church that puts to practice what you say. God, we love you. We ask that you would just conform us to the image of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.